Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and digital productions of all kinds. And our second hour is something that we typically want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be speaking about the future of AI in theater. And we have with us our very own Talak Lopez Waterman as he talks through how he's been using AI in theater. So go ahead and get your questions in early. And if you're in Mukana, go ahead and vote them up or down because this show is driven by you. And if you're wondering what is Mukana, well, head over to askofficehours.global or you'll see a QR code on your screen right now and go ahead and use it because we're looking forward to answering your questions as we get into today's show. Uh, you know, speaking of show, Mitchell, let's get this party started. All right. Party is started, Liberty. Thank you. With our first question is Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. A lot of uh, Twitch streamers are single person shows. What tools from that would, uh, world could we uh, reuse? How about a second hour with a large channel Twitch streamer going over their workflow? I love that idea, Alex. Yeah, we can go out and look and, and see what we can find as far as uh, who might we might, might be able to bring on to talk about Twitch. Uh, I, from from the stuff that I've worked with with Twitch streamers, uh, a lot you know OBS is very popular <laughs> among Twitch streamers, uh, as are a lot of Stream Deck integrations. So a lot of the Stream Deck stuff that you've seen the automation is something that a lot of uh, OBS um, Twitch streamers use heavily um, to kind of tie all that stuff together, so they can jump back and forth between their graphics and their responses and their other pieces. Uh, Outside of that, it seems to be a lot very similar to what we use, um, but we'll reach out and see if we can't bring somebody on to talk about it specifically. Chris? Yeah, you know, I remember when I first heard about Twitch and I started looking at what they were doing, I was like, these, what are they using? They must have a giant production switcher and, you know, how are they, they're doing a picture in picture and where's that animation coming from? And that's where I first learned about OBS about, I guess about five years ago, maybe. And um, I mean, my mind was blown. I mean, it is basically, I have now learned those tools over time, mostly due to COVID and office hours. Um, and I think that there's a lot we can use. I think we are using a lot of what they're doing. I think they're better at it than I am. That's for sure. They know more about what this stuff works. I know that just... Um, uh, a couple weeks ago, I needed to figure out how to actually use the record function inside of OBS. And, you know, it makes this ridiculous muxed file. And Jonas is like, oh, yeah, we could just have to demux it. Here, let me show you. And like two clicks and four seconds later, I had a completely usable file. I would have like argued with, with it with, you know, Adobe Media Encoder or Compressor or whatever. And he goes, no, I just go click, click, done. So... I, I agree there's a lot to be learned from that space, that vertical, if you will. Um, I'm continually amazed at what you can do. And yes, it does work on a Mac as long, as long as you don't ask it to do too much. And Courtney? And as an adjunct to that, maybe get somebody in who does eSports because the equipment uh, that is used for doing that kind of stuff where you have to have you know, individual cameras and all the players and uh, the individual screens from each player and so on, big screen production and the stuff that goes into uh, an eSports arena broadcast would be interesting too, the technology involved in doing that. 
Yeah, and just their ability to um, just have their engagement part of things. That's the big thing about Twitch is being able to you know, continually communicate with your audience, bringing people into your streams, all of that. So that's a great idea. Looking forward to getting that on a, maybe on a Monday. <laughs> Next question. Next one in from Scott Hancock in Tokyo, Japan. Zoom ISO and NDI seem like similar tools for extracting participants from Zoom. Zoom ISO is so integrated now, but are there any cases where being sentenced to Windows where NDI has advantages? Talak? So the one thing I'll say about this question is that um, <clears throat> I would say that NDI and Zoom ISO are slightly different in that NDI is a protocol of sending video across a network. And Zoom ISO is a way to pull those videos out to um, a couple of different uh, output types, like SDI uh, through a, Ma a Blackmagic uh, card, or Siphon on the same computer, or NDI across a network. And those are different prototypes, <coughs> protocols for outputting and transporting video. Um, and then when it comes to, I think maybe what you're talking about is NDI uh, screen scrape or NDI capture. And that uh, possibly, or if, if a particular type of uh, product like a Windows uh, Teams meeting can output NDI, then you can take that same kind of video protocol and, and bring it out and use it in that way. So it's just a matter of thinking about whether you want to use Zoom or you want to use Windows or you want, what, what you want to use and then how you want to move that video and and uh, use it for your for your purposes. Um, Alex? Oops, sorry. And one last thing is that also Zoom Rooms can output NDI and Zoom Rooms, uh, that's another way to take an NDI video pipeline from Zoom and work with it. And sorry about that. <laughs> no worries, Alex. And, uh, you know, I, or Andy reached out as well. And so this is pretty much a lot of what Slalock said. Uh, but he said, uh, Zoom, Zoom ISO uh, can export NDI from a Mac or PC. Zoom Rooms, which cross our cross-platform, can also send NDI. Zoom ISO's core technology is about... Uh, is also built into several cross-platform broadcast tools directly, like Wirecast, Epifan, and New Blue. NDI is a protocol supporting many of these apps, but the Zoom's technology is built into them directly, um, to uh, you know, which is demonstrated in the vMix uh, 27 beta. Uh, and it can be um, simplify the workflow a lot. And what Andy underlines is the big thing is to avoid the, the big thing to avoid is screen scraping <laughs> to get the ISO feed. So whatever you do, whether you're doing it directly uh, or, or out there, screen scraping is not something that we should do anymore. You know, not with Zoom anyway. We have to do it with other applications because they are cave-like. Um, but, uh, but Zoom, we don't have to live that way. He didn't say that end part. I, I made that up. Next question. CJ Cavell from Downeytown, Pennsylvania, and right here on our uh, panel, and also a QR code question, uh, asks, when NFL broadcast from Europe, how do they staff for the production, and how much of the staff travels versus pulling from local crews? CJ? Yes, uh, I was watching with some friends yesterday, and I usually don't watch the Europe games, but they made a comment that, oh yeah, the production's getting a lot better. And I never really thought about it. So I figured this is a great time to flex the QR code. So here we go. Nice. Alex? 
Well, and the good news is, is that CJ got this in really early. So it, we had time to have it kind of bounce around a little bit internally. And so here's a, a fairly uh, detailed answer. Uh, Bo, Bo uh, reached out and, or I reached out to Bo and Bo uh, gave us a little insight here um, and said, uh, someone in our community actually uh, worked on an NFL game in London last season for ESPN. He said that they brought over the core production group uh, from one of ESPN's college football broadcasts. This included the producer, director, ADTD, audio, GFX, and some replay ops and some camera ops. The engineering team and mobile units, along with a number of other crew positions, were sourced locally. Um, on the in-venue side of things, the NFL brings in uh, the same uh, special event production team from Van Wagner um, uh, that produces uh, the in-venue LED shows for events like opening night kickoff and the Super Bowl. Uh, uh, Van, Wa Van Wagner um, uh, will bring in um, uh, a front bench crew and GFX support to augment the stadium's normal video board crew. So that's the that's the fairly uh, and when you ask the questions early, we're really starting to work on getting out to folks within our community that that have some detailed answers and we're going to kind of, kind of keep on trying to trickle them through as best we can. And Courtney. Yeah. I've always wondered about that, Alex, if they do, if they're doing a, a broadcast for American television from London, do they use uh, local hardware? In other words, the trucks, do they come from, are they PAL trucks and they just scan convert and send it over to uh, most trucks States can, or, most or trucks can they? flip. So, you know, most trucks that we work with can go to pa from PAL to NTSC. They're not usually limited. I mean, almost all the equipment that's in the trucks What can... about the cameras and stuff? That, those aren't flippable usually. Usually they are. Right. Yeah, they yeah. Are you, usually you can set those cameras to PAL or, or um, uh, we, 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 you know, and the, you, I, I actually don't know for sure what they do there, um, but I know that we flip stuff there all the time to match ours because, for instance, when, you're, when we're streaming, when you stream to YouTube or Facebook, it is always 30 frames a second, whole frames, right. not 29.97, not 25, not 24. Um, it, it's 30 or 60. You can do 60 for games or, or on that engine, but that's it. And, and so we have to flip these trucks um, pretty regularly to make sure that we're matching them. And I don't think there's any, been any time when we were overseas that we, that we had to go 25 and then at the very end go to, I mean, unless it was being delivered to the local market at the same time over broadcast, uh, then you do have to do that. So that's the, that's the only time we've, we've had to make that work. And it looks horrible. Like, well, yeah, the scan I, I don't conversion think, is not. I don't think the average person notices, but I'm always like chunky, chunky, chunky. You know, when it goes from t 24 or 25 to 60 or 30, it's, you're just, you, if you know what you're looking for, it's just chunky. And then just from the chat, Mickey adds that NFL broadcasts, including those originating from the U.S., use crew from all around the world. So um, having that international flavor to them. Next question. Vic Hernandez from Springfield, Missouri, is here with a question. When we get back to them, how about a second hour on culture? How to instill one that promotes personal and business growth and a robust industry? Go ahead, Nigel. I'm sure many of us would be happy to uh, to get involved in that, although I think we're probably going to have to break the problem down because culture is a big thing. There's quite a lot to how do you create a culture, but there's also quite a lot to how do you maintain it and how do you manage it. But, you know, the simplest answer to this question is always behave in the way you want others to behave. Be the mirror you want to be for other people. If you, if you dis display the right behavior, they'll follow you. How luck? 
Yeah, I think that this is a, an interesting topic, and I think it would be really interesting to to kind of dig down on it. I, I've always wondered, um, you know, how it is that different businesses that I deal with as a consumer are are so different. You know, when you call when you t when you call customer support in, in one business, it is like totally, totally different than when you call customer support at a different business. And how do how do we how do how do they get there? You know, um, it's not about the rules. It's it's about something else. And so my question is, how do they get to that point when you when you leave going? I was really upset with something in this product, and now I'm like, okay, I'm cool. We we we, we got to a place that's good. Or you you know are talking to the phone company, and you never are resolved ever. So you know, like, what's the difference? And Alex, yeah, it's really interesting that uh, I've worked in a, in a lot of Fortune 10 companies and Fortune 100 companies. And the cultures are completely different between each one of them. And to, to the point, I think this would be a fascinating conversation to the level that we can talk about it. But it is, each company definitely has a different view of, and, and it, it permeates everything. And it's kind of, it is kind of magical, especially when you deal with a company that has 100,000 employees or more, that when you go from one to another, you expect them all to be kind of corporate, but they're, they're corporate. There's some things that are the same. And then there are some things that are very different between the companies. And, you know, and it, it's, and it comes down to the stuff that's on the walls or not on the walls, the, even the way people dress, you know, like it, you know, you go to some companies and it's wild and people are, you know, doing all kinds of crazy. And you go to other companies and it's all like very drab, <laughs> you know, like everything, everything's very, very, uh, you know, gray, <laughs> gray and dark and everything else. And, and it's, uh, and it's a very, it's, it's really interesting how that culture kind of grows up within these larger companies. And they, it's one of the reasons they don't, um, sometimes absorb other where you really get into trouble is when two companies with two different cultures merge and they're equal size so you'll notice that like a lot some companies will only pick up companies that are very small in relationship to them because having those two cultures um, collide can be very difficult and almost impossible to manage and chris i would love to know the history of these two words, um, corporate culture or phrases, corporate culture and corporate branding. I think that, I think that if we look at those words just historically, there's going to be a point where all of a sudden it became like kind of cool that we're all talking about our cor corporate culture or our corporate branding. And I think that there were probably companies, I always go to Coke when I think about branding, um, uh, Coca-Cola, uh, where, um, sorry, I just want to be sure, um, where, um, it's sort of ingrained in the company and it wasn't an initiative, like from the top down, like we're going to fix our corporate culture. It just sort of was. And then once that title gets maybe referred to say that company, then all of a sudden it becomes something that we can almost talk about, you know, by, by giving it a label, we've given humans the power to talk about that topic. And then all of a sudden it starts to affect other companies. Obviously we want to look at companies that have been successful and say, how can we be more like them? Well, it's their cor corporate culture. Ooh, there's a word. Let's talk about that. And I, I would love to know the history of when, you know, corporate brand was first used or corporate culture, because I, I think it would it would give us some insight into how this happens. I think some companies are just plain good at it. They don't even think about it. And then there's the ones that want to be good at it, lean heavily on the words and the language, 
and then it, it's off from there. I think you're on to something there, Chris, because uh, when Nigel started and just breaking out, like we probably do need to break it out. And I thought about, you know, there are people who are still in like their startup or solopreneurs phase and how you really want to set yourself up for success if you do want to grow and scale and what culture looks like there and preparing for that. But then also those who might have a larger team and then what that looks like. And we did this project a couple of weeks ago, just doing an interview series. And one was with someone who was really big on customer experience. So now to throw in another, you know, term in there, the culture, the branding and the experience, like they all tie in together. So there, there could be makings of a series there to really unpack that. And how do you take the next steps and how do you make that work? And also, we've got this this new generation coming. Are we at Gen Z? I think there's an alpha behind them. I'm still <laughs> working through that. But the need to have a, a strong or very be very clear on your company culture, because then how do you embrace that next generation who, you know, they don't look like anyone, any generation that's come before them and how they envision work and work-life balance. So there's, there's a lot to unpack there. And I want to bring in because the chat is firing up. And so Vic mentions that T-Mobile had teams to instill um, like the T-Mobile culture into this um, into into Sprint. So being very specific um, there, Robert also says, HR culture, <laughs> be afraid, where innocent people have to prove their innocence but are fired anyways. And then John says, culture is the result of behaviors. Alex? Yeah, and it really does, the culture really permeates everything in these companies. It's who they hire. Like they'll make a decision, this, this person fits into, when I got a job at one company, I realized I went to the interview and all they wanted to do is know what I look like. Like, like I just realized that it was like they had had a bunch of conversations with me, not just what I look like, but how I, how I hold myself and what I, how I talk and everything else. And will I fit? There was nothing, there was no content that we talked about. I just realized they had decided that, that I'm probably a good fit, but they wanted to make sure I wasn't going to destabilize the team, you know, for what, in, in what, not so much how I look, but just how I, who I, you know, like, am I going to fit into this team? Do I look like I'm part of that team? Um, the, uh, and so I think that, uh, those things, but it's, it's also, you know, what they put on the walls, what speakers they bring in, uh, how often do they do, um, you know, all hands, all hands are so like, it is the secret sauce in my opinion is all hands. And you watch companies that can weather big storms and a lot of them are doing all hands every week, you know, like, and, and it's, um, you know, is, is to have this, give people a, an opportunity to ask questions and and say what the from the CEO's position or from the C-suite, these are things that are important to us. But they express those things all the time, the kind of bands they bring to their to their events, the kind of, you know, all of those things. And and I think that um, it's, it's really fascinating because, again, as someone who's worked as a, you know, gray badge, yellow badge, orange badge, red badge, blue badge, you know, you learn a lot about, you know, what, you know, how these different companies approach that problem. Nigel? Yeah, I, I guess my net ad here is that your organization has a culture, whether you like it, know it, or don't. And uh, no, putting no effort into your culture doesn't mean you don't have a culture. You've got one, you just don't manage it, don't control it. And so typically in, you know, in stuff I've done, first thing you have to do is assess what the culture is, assess what you want the culture to be, and then build the plan to get from one to the other. And that can be a tremendously complicated and difficult thing to do. But, but it, it's doable, it's hard work, but it's all about the behaviors of 
the people to each other and the principles upon which you manage the team. And CJ. If people are really interested in this topic, one book that I really recommend is from 2001. A lot of us have read it or are familiar with it, Jim Collins, Good to Great. They did a, I guess it was a study of about 1,400 companies. They found a subset of, of 11 of them that went over a 40-year period, went from good to being great. And then they compared them to other companies in the same vertical that just maintained. And they really took a, a, a breakdown of what made Eckerd different from Walgreens, what made Scott Paper different from Kimberly Clark, etc. Uh, really, really worth your time reading. The whole series is wonderful. Next question. And it's from Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida. How do you measure the effectiveness of a streaming series like Office Hours? What metrics would you use to show success? Go ahead, Alex. Average view time over 15 minutes. Like that, that's, that's what I measure. <laughs> like like that's, that's MVP. And then, in, you know, average view time. We can always turn the, the dial up on how many people are watching. Um, that's just a function of marketing. It's how long will they stay is the thing that we pay a lot of attention to. So we average, I think, in the ballpark of 22 minutes a show, which if you talk to YouTubers, that's a, it's a very long time. <laughs> like so, so it's a, it's a very high number. Um, and so, uh, but, but that's, um, so, so anyway, so, but average view time is the number one thing that we, uh, or dwell time is the number one thing that we pay attention to. Um, again, we can turn pipes up to make it, to have more people watching. Um, but what we really focus on is how long are they watching? Mitchell? Alex, can you apply a little bit of the methodology that we did in radio, which was your average quarter hour and your time spent listening? Uh, does it make sense how many quarters you get out of Not that particular? You just don't get that da the data in that way from YouTube. So you get an enormous amount of data. Like, it, it you know, we definitely um, are able to watch. Now, one of the things that I that I look at in our live is the direction of the curve. You know, the so <clears throat> what you want to see, and we see this almost every day, um, but what you want to see here is if you think about the curve, from the from and this is time right and this is the number of viewers uh what you want to see is something that starts like this and just keeps going up like that and then drops off like that is a it's a very healthy live stream you know from what you're doing what you don't want to see is you know something that starts you know here and then just kind of goes like that it just means you're boring <laughs> so, so if you see that it just means people are just slowly leaving uh they're leaving faster than they're coming in um and then you also like if you see things like um if you go through here and you see something that it might start like this and then it goes up like this and then it goes down like that you know and then peters out so uh something happened what, what, what we look at when we look at the live stream itself is that um you know something happened right there and that's usually someone tweeted it, someone said something, someone, you know, so you get this, this punch. People watch for a little while and then oftentimes, depending on how sharp this is, somebody said something or did something that, that people decided if, if, if this becomes a certain uh, steepness, it means that a bunch of people decide they don't want to play anymore. You know, and that's you, this is worse usually than this because it means you, if you have a steep curve, it means that you really turn people off, you know, in, in there. And and there's some people who they build their product around that and that's fine. That's not our product. <laughs> like, you know, and so, uh, so, so it depends on, I don't like to see that, um, you know, there, I think that that's usually an unforced error when I look at it. 
So anyway, that's how we look at the live streams um, that we, you know, that we're managing. And so I, and I look at them every week. I mean, I, I definitely pay attention to those and I'm, but I'm not paying attention to total cum. I do pay attention when it's unusually high. So when I see something that's like, wow, we had, you know, an unusually high, what, what were we doing there that was different than what we do otherwise? I mean, because we're pretty consistent with the number of viewers. It, um, it'll, it'll peak probably somewhere between February and March, and it'll trough somewhere between uh, August and early September. Um, and, and then it just kind of fades up and down. And it's, it's not that large of a number, but that's because we've been simmering for a long time and we're, you know, getting ready to turn this on. We were about to turn it on this fall and then we had all this moving going on. So we're going to finish that and then we're going to start to um, see, you know, over next year, we're going to see how, how it, we will change to a, a, a we're not going to change the content, but the way we promote the show will be focused much more on uh, numbers than, you know, total viewer numbers than, um, you know, we know that we've solved the problem about average view time. So now we're going to solve the next problem. I was actually curious if like, if there's a metric that isn't necessarily there in YouTube, but that you would like to see, like, oh, yeah. because of the nature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we ask for the same thing from everybody all the time, which is we want exit and entry data. So right now that, that graph I just showed you is the equilibrium between people entering and people exiting. It is not how many people are coming in and how many people are going out. And so we want, we want to see that, like that is a, that's a, and we've gotten, we've built it into a system that we, when we control the stream completely, uh, we've had Akamai build reports for us that, that do that for us. And it is fascinating. It's a, it's a truly fascinating number that, a, a stat that you, that nobody, nobody gives us. Um, but, uh, but that's, that's useful. Um, other data that's really useful is, where do people come from? That that data you get, like, what, you know, did they come from this? Did that, what platform are they on? You know, we know that, for instance, our show is about 70, 75%, some version of an Apple platform is watching, you know, like it's, it's you know, in that, in that ballpark most days. Um, and so those are the kind of things that we can, uh, we, we can pay attention to. We know, you know, the percentage of people in the United States, we know, you know, the average age, gender, you know, all those things are things that we um, that we have. And, and, and I, I look at those every week and think about them. Like I don't, the one mistake people make is they look at things and they knee jerk, well, I have to fix this and I'm going to do all these things to fix it. I don't really, I'm not really that, you know, what I've learned is that you watch the numbers and then you slowly pay attention to it and slowly try to make moves and, and just slowly kind of think about those things to try to, to try to affect a number. Uh, if you, move too quickly, you are zigzagging. It's, it's exactly the same as if you're in a car and you start, you're backing up and you're suddenly swinging back and forth trying to overcorrect. You just have to just kind of stay and keep pointing towards the middle and trying to find it. Next oh, and by question. the way, uh, can I say one? I had to, uh, yeah. one, one other note uh, from the past. After I was so um, sure of it, I was corrected that ESPN did produce the whole show in 1080p50. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then it was converted at 60. At 60. Um, it, is, uh, it has to do with a little bit of broadcast and a little bit of house power. So anyway, just there's a minor correction of the, of the thing that I thought I was there. So a little more information that rolled in while we were talking. And that's what you can do on a live show. <laughs> Next when we have question. good people in the back, we have a, we, exactly. we have a really good uh, folks in the back end. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Bo. Next question. And it's from Alexander Knight in Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. Opus AI has added support for the AV1 codec. Are we starting to see mass adoption? Jason? 
Um, the short answer is yes. So uh, a lot of this just comes down to the almighty dollar. But uh, yes, AV1 is 30% better compression as a rule over HEVC and VP9. But um, at the end of the day, it's really all about the fact that it's it's a royalty-free license. And um, yeah, that, that free tends to be the best price. Alex? When Apple spends good money, millions and millions of dollars, putting an AV1 decoder into the hardware, not into the software, but in the hardware, probably the future, probably the future. That's all I'm saying. And Courtney? Yeah, as the manufacturer, chip manufacturers are incorporating that codec into their hardware, uh, it'll spread faster. And of course, you know, because it does 30%, it's a 30% savings on bandwidth. So, you know, all of the uh, uh, cable companies and everybody else who, you know, charges has to use that bandwidth and pay for that bandwidth is going to adopt it because it's going to save them 30% off the top. And it gives you, uh, you know, uh, uh, a much a better look at a lower bandwidth. So, um, also the uh, it's designed for the internet, uh, whereas the other H.264, 265 were designed for broadcast and cable with a you know a, a connected thing. So you didn't have to deal with IP based data with packet loss and multiple paths and so on. And AV1 takes all that into consideration. So it's much better at reconstructing a signal at the other end that travels over the internet. Go ahead, Talib. So first rule of thermal dynamics, there's no free lunch. So who who gets paid? What what's what's happening here? Can can anybody explain that? It, it's who's not paying. Like, you know, so it's basically the all these big companies decided that the MPEG consortium was crazy and they were going to improve this so that they don't have to pay. That's that's who's getting paid. Is it's not getting paid, it's who's not paying. Every all the big companies, you know, this is it's such a great um uh lesson in overplaying your hand is that you that, that the MPEG consortium overplayed its hand over and over and over again. And the big companies, you know, people, they some of them still bought into it. So you think that it's winning and you're making the money and everything else, but they were conspiring. <laughs> you know, like they were all talking to each other like, hey, this is crazy that we have to pay for this. And this is crazy that we have to do this. And, and you have them all talking to each other, talking about how we don't want to do this anymore. Um, and then at some, some point, long after they paid you and said everything was fine and took you out to dinner and bought you big steaks in Las Vegas during NAB, they suddenly snap and suddenly you have a consortium that everybody's here. We don't want to do this anymore. And we're going to build, you know, we can invest capacity for it. And it, you know, companies should very closely watch what these kind of things look like because, you know, com you know a company oftentimes will get a winning formula and they will just keep working that formula because it's winning not realizing that there, every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And you just have to be very careful of how you press down on that. And, you know, cause you don't know when you press down on it, you don't know where that's going to squirt out, <laughs> like, you know, like, like where it's going to come out when you push down, but it's going to, when you're pushing down on something, you're pushing out reaction and that reaction can come from a lot of different directions. And then just coming from our chat community here in Mukana, John says YouTube is using it. I can't imagine a wider spread adoption. Go ahead, Chris. Uh, uh, Courtney, I like what you said about bandwidth and Alex, what you were saying about it, it's what you don't pay. Um, a friend of mine told me a story and I can't remember who it was. He worked for the phone company many, many years ago. And when they changed the font, that they used in the phone book, they saved millions of dollars in ink. 
Same information was being dispersed, but it cost them way less money. And all they had to do was change the font. Same kind of thing. You change the codec, you don't have to pay MPEG. Same information is being dispersed, saving tons of money. And, Alex? And, and the argument was also you're, because it's more efficient, you also aren't paying for the bandwidth as well. So you're, you know, you're winning in two different places. Um, now, MPEG was gonna, it has you know, H.266 or whatever, which is supposed to be much more efficient than H.265. But AV, AV1 was all these companies saying, I don't, we don't want to play anymore. Like, we, we can figure this out ourselves, you know, and we can do this, you know, go down our own path um, to make that happen. But, but the, to your point also is, you know, when you think about it, like fonts get really expensive and they're really difficult to work with. And when you look at what happened, Google just started producing fonts that are very similar. You know, Microsoft did that to some degree, but, but Google has all these open fonts that are very similar. You can't, you know, you can't uh, copyright the fonts in the same way. And so they're very similar to other fonts, but they're not exactly the same. And they push those out because that makes it in less expensive for them. It also makes it less expensive for all of their customers. And it's a relatively, I'm surprised that Google hasn't built a whole foundry that just did did this for hundreds and hundreds of fonts. They, I, I'm kind of surprised they've left it so simple because it's such a small cost for them to, re, to rebuild fonts. Um, maybe they would have gotten more friction, but it, it definitely, those are the ones you see on the web all the time because they're free. You know, and so you just have to always, you know, companies have to always be careful of, how they interact with that ecosystem and and making sure that they're part of that and understand you know how they you know what what the impact is next question christian unacuso from ottawa asking hello i'm a recent resident in canada and a junior in the city i'm eager to immerse myself in the filmmaking and video editing community here do you have any recommendations for websites or resources where i can find job openings and internships thanks go ahead alex um, you know, the uh, uh, production hub is usually a pretty good one to start with a little bit. You know, that works in a lot of different places. At least it's seeing what's going on. You're going to want to start figuring out what film make, what films are going on. Talk to event companies um, to, um, you know, a lot of times you can find your way into being a PA. Uh, I have had people, I had someone who was way overqualified PA one of my shows in Washington, D.C. So he just came in and he came in as a PA. We really realized very quickly. I mean, this guy builds studios super technical and so we had him pa a couple times and then we had him be the engineer for us a couple times and then i hired him and he worked full time for me until he left for me and now he is like lead of engineering at um uh at eurovision which wouldn't uh, at, at, in you know like remote engineering or whatever in the u.s for eurovision and the um uh that would not have happened if he had not shown up as a pa <laughs> like, you know, in my, you know, like, and, and he just came in and he just said, I just really like what Pixelcore is doing. I watch it and I'm, I just want to be part of this. And, you know, and then he, then he executed, you know, and so the, the key is to find PA jobs, uh, you know, when you're trying to get into a new, new place, find PA jobs and then don't overplay your hand. We were just talking about that, but just be super useful, be great and part of the team. Um, don't talk about all the things you know, and that this is just, you're just doing this to get your foot in. Just be a great PA. And then people will hire you and then you, you know, you can slowly fix things and slow things. But the biggest problem PAs have is they come in and they, they did go to school for this or they, they do other things and they, and they tell you about it all the time. And more importantly, they tell your clients about it all the time. And then you're like, well, I'm not going to use that person again. <laughs> so, so the, um, so, so anyway, so the, you know, like two, you know, like you'll, you'll, uh, in, in my world, if I, if someone says that person's very chatty, 
Uh, that's a nice way of saying we're not going to bring them back. We're, they're not client facing; like they talk too much, and so, um, and so the. Uh, but, but being very chatty is usually a death knell to to most people who who are, especially when you're starting. You can do it if you're really advanced, but not when you're getting your first time on your team. Courtney, yeah, I'm not. Uh, it's been a while since I've worked in Canada, and I've always found it difficult to work in Canada because Canadians are very picky about letting non-Canadian residents uh, or citizens uh, work in the, uh, especially in the film and television industry. They seem to be very upset about outside people coming in to work there. So, uh, Christian, I hope you are a naturalized citizen of Canada, or you have immigrated and established a residency there, because then it will be a lot easier for you to get work. And maybe Alexander can let us know what the work situation is like in Canada these days and whether they've opened it up any or are still as picky about uh, how long and where you can work if you're not a Canadian citizen. Yeah, if you're throwing it to me, I don't have anything to add because I don't work in that industry. Sorry. No problem. Well, hopefully I can add some, um, as a born Canadian, just add some flavor to that. You can definitely look at sites like meetup.com. Um, there are, that's where I found in the past, like a lot of active groups, whether they be film, outside photo, etc. cetera. The, the film community is very robust. So you just really, just if you're willing to just show up, um, as Alex said earlier, um, just say, hey, I'd like to volunteer, I'd like to help. Um, I think, Alex, you might have said this too. If not, I'll expound on it a little bit more of just like seeing events. And when you see some of those those camera, those camera ops, being helpful is always a good thing. Um, there's TIFF. So if you go to TIFF.net and just look up, they have a lot of programs for where students related programs, because I see that you say junior. So I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're in school. So from that vantage point, students are always, people are always willing to help students, especially if you show interest um, from there. So yeah, heading a look at meetup.com, look at Eventbrite, because a lot of people um, post their their community events on Eventbrite as well. So that can kind of just help you uh, figure out where you want to be and go. And if you are in Ottawa, you're like five hours from Toronto. So maybe a weekend trip and or even just outside of the city to just get out there and get to know some more folks in the community. Alex? Yeah. And you may want to look at Roger's communications. Roger, so there is an, um, so by law, uh, Rogers has to produce enormous amounts of multi-language content. And so I'm not sure uh, what your background is, but they may be building it in your language. I mean, they build a lot of multi-language content out of, out of Rogers and it's, it's by law, they have to support it. And so um, they have programs for that and they have very small budgets to do that, which means they're always looking for interns and PAs and everything else to get in there and getting into Rogers. If, if there's a pipeline there, if you see, if you find Rogers communications, and I would literally walk up to their, you know, go to their broadcast center if there is one in Ottawa. I bet there, I bet I bet you there is, um, and just say you're looking for an internship or you're looking for a, you know, PA position. Um, I know many people people in Rogers that started as PAs and ended up as producers and everything else over time. Like you have to be very patient as you start to work this. But I have definitely seen people be successful by working their way up through the Rogers um, broadcast system because they've almost no budget for some of these multi language stuff, and they just start trying to do the best job they can. 
And one more quick pro tip, going to the municipality or the provincial um, site and going to that economic development channel where it's film and entertainment or digital media, typically they'll have a list of either schools or jobs there as well. So that's just another, you know, just another channel and avenue that will help you or even just calling the film office and getting to know people like this is a relationship business. So introducing yourself, saying you're new to the city, that's what what these economic development agencies and departments are there for is to help people get jobs. So hopefully that's helpful. Next question. It's a QR code question coming in from Unawahi Black Bear Marshall from Ohia. I listen to pre-show audio when making my deliveries and prefer its low bandwidth stream. Hasn't been on until just before show starts for over a week and no show at all for a few Sundays. Looks like someone decided to end this play out for people. Why? Alex? Uh, this is part. This is just a, a, a hangout from our um, transfer to the new system. So we moved, we closed up office hours and we're streaming from a new system and we need to get it back on. We'll get it back on over the next uh, week or so. Um, so by the end of, by, by this time next, next week, you probably should see that stream. We'll make sure that we prioritize that. I apologize. It's been a week. I know that people have been listening to it on the, in that, in that radio mode and we've been, uh, putting out a series of, you know, little fires um, of just making sure that everything's working for the main show. Um, but then we'll backfill that and get it in there. We we really think that the radio show or the radio app is going to become probably the one of the primary places that people hear the show um, uh, over the next year. But we uh, but we're, we're just in a transition mode. But stay be patient. And uh, again, by uh, by the middle of the month, we'll have it we'll have it running for you. Next question. Matthew from Oakland, California, has a QR code question. What is the preferred method for recording the program out feed from an ATEM switch? Jason? Uh, I'm going to assume that you don't mean a, a switcher and instead mean, mean a router. Uh, I guess either way, it's going to be about the same. Ideally, you want to be able to duplicate the program out stream such that if, um, if your recording device fails, you're not going to actually lose your feed out. And um, assuming that's the case, it doesn't really matter how. I like using hardware. I, I like the, the HyperDex, especially the higher-end full 1RU mounts. Uh, you don't need an, a, an extreme 4K HDR or anything like that. But yeah, just get an ISO and loop out. Go ahead, Alex. Preferred. Preferred. That's what you, that's what you said. So there's 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 what you can do, and then there's preferred, and and you didn't give us a budget. So I'm going to tell you the way that we do it. Um, you know, so we you know we record our programs in a, we record them all with Hyperdex, and typically the full size Hyperdex because we've had some recording issues on the smaller ones. Um, we record an Apple ProRes 422 if it's going to be uh, need to be color corrected. We'll go up to HQ if it's just corporate and very long. And we're not going to color correct it. Then we go down to LT to manage um, bandwidth. But it's all ProRes. We record to the SSDs. We do not record to SanDisk because they fail. Um, and um, so Samsung, like the 900 series, uh, are what we use for those those SSDs. Um, we record the um, pr the program, and then we record a clean, which is should be all not your lower thirds and everything else, which is also a backup to the program. And then we record an ISO of every source that that that's coming in. Um, to that to that system, so that is the preferred way that we that we find it. And a lot of our clients prefer it. Uh, it is the uh, it's an expensive solution. Um, you can definitely switch down and make it much more affordable by having your, your ATEM Mini Extreme. 
you know, Switcher just record all those channels for you in H.264. Uh, I will warn you that I've had enough failures. The percentage of failures of the ATEM Extreme in, uh, is high enough, like 25% where I didn't get the whole show, um, you know, that I will now always record the program in a separate thing just to make sure I have a program. It saved me a couple times. And I don't know why. I don't know what it is, but, you know, it, every, you know it's, I don't use it that often mostly because the first time it happened, it failed and then... And then I, and then I, so it's just, I don't know what it is. It just stops recording. It's just like, no, nope, again. And it's T5 drive, you know, brand new, you know, like blanked out everything else. And so I've had enough, I've had enough failures with it. I, I won't, I won't depend on it. I, I do grab it for convenience. And when it works, I'm like, oh yeah, that's great. Courtney? Yeah, I agree. The HyperDex good or, or the video assist. If you're using one of those, they also record in H.264 or ProRes or, DNX. Uh, uh, it depends on what your purpose of the recording is. If it's just to archive it or just to have a backup uh, of your other recordings, you know, you can do something like I use these uh, H.264 recorders. They have HDMI pass through, so you could run your output, your program output HDMI right through one of these little boxes. They're about 100, 100 to 125 bucks, and they record onto a USB stick. Um, uh, your program at H.264 along with the audio. Single button to record, easy peasy, no software. Uh, it doesn't crash. It can record in 720 or 1080p. And Jason? I should have known that Alex was going to harp on preferred. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the best kept secrets from the Blackmagic line is that even the lower end Hyperdex can be plugged into this rack mount that will take regular SSDs and it works beautifully. So another really inexpensive way to have good failover recording is the, not the cheapest, not the one third RU because those, yeah, those love to overheat, but the half mount um, RU, they're just fantastic if you just plug them in via USB-C directly into Blackmagic's Multidoc 10G. And Chris. Alex, I want to go back to your comment about 25% of the ATEM Extreme records fail. Are those long records? Yeah. But, uh, uh, two to three hours. A, okay. All right. I've, They're shows. I've, I, I got you. Yeah. I've, I, I was kind of shocked to hear that, but I've never tried to record anything over an hour. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They're all over I've, an hour. And they got yeah, about an hour, hour and a half, and then they went... They just, just I looked down. It wasn't recording anymore. So no error, just one, no recording. Yeah. One thing I w really wish that they would give you as an option is to enable uh, which inputs you want to record. Because quite yeah. often I'm recording, you know, three inputs and it's and it records eight yeah, and five of them are black. It's been the problem that Blackmagic's had in the past. Like, for instance, if you do record audio on a hyperdeck, it records 16 channels of audio rather you, even if you have, well, it used to, I think it now doesn't, but it used to just do 16 channels of audio all the time, which confused the heck, I mean, just ground Final Cut into the ground. Like it was just, you know, like opening all these, and so we had to go in and delete all these channels to make sure that we could, you know, uh, poor, poor Mike Matzdorf one time, which that's been a whole day just doing that. Anyway, yeah. Next question. Eduardo Augustine from Panama City, Panama asked, I haven't had clients for a couple of months now, four months. What can I do in the meantime to keep the small business going on event streaming? Alex? 
Yeah, the one thing that I will say is that keeping busy is really important. Um, so this is the right as a great question um, is that you don't want to stop doing things. You want to use this time to get better at things, to work on, uh, you know, skill sets and so on and so forth. I would, you know, typically I would look at nonprofits, uh, small businesses, think people that can't afford what you do, um, but but you would definitely benefit them. Remember, nonprofits have board members, and board members are t typically people that are well connected within the community and well connected. And if you're, you know, if you suddenly show up for those things, you start getting introduced to other people and introduced to other people before you know it, you're doing more work. So um, definitely think about um, what those, you know, you know what those actually look like. Mitchell. Yeah, Alex has good advice there. I usually pick one nonprofit a year and concentrate on doing something for them, just cover my you know outside expenses and do the very best job that I can. It looks good on your resume. And like Alex says, you never know what kind of friends you're going to make in the process. The other thing is we're in a bit of a trend and spotting a trend is important. Um, the trend is that corporate and pharmaceutical work is slacking off in this area of the country. It's time to diversify. And that means you need to start looking elsewhere for business down the road before it's a problem. Yeah, just picking up from what Mitchell just shared, this could be an opportunity for you to also look at this as maybe a business development season where you are making sure you're going out to events, introducing yourself to some organizations um, that make sense for you. Uh, if you know what your like your sales cycle, not even cycle, but how you get your leads, then double down on that. Uh, something you can do like right now today is craft some sort of email to some people that you've either worked with in the past and asked for some referrals and or just even letting family and friends know they, hey, you know, this is just a reintroduction to some of the things that you do. So all of those activities will, you know, one by one um, help you get to the 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 pipeline of just having your pipeline going, because as you say here with just being a like a small business, because that's some of the challenges at that time, because you're so focused on the client and the client work that if you're not constantly filling the pipeline that you can run into areas where it's like, oh, now there's a dry, dry season. And um, last part of that is this being the end of the quarter, a lot of companies are already looking at their Q1, their Q2. So that's why I say just even doubling down on getting out there, getting your name out there and getting into people's Rolodexes so that you will be top of mind for those projects that they're planning for right now. So this might be a really great opportunity for you at the same time. Jason? The Joker on Batman Begins had half of the truth. So here's half the truth. If you're good at something, never do it for free. The other half of it is if you haven't done it for four months, get better at it. And there are a lot of opportunities to do that. Talak? So this reminds me a little bit of the time, you know, during the pandemic when all theaters closed. And so I was, you know, what am I going to do? And so there was some time where I, I, I took some time off, which hadn't happened in 20 years. You know what I mean? So there, there's that side of things. But also I had to, I started getting questions about doing live, doing theater on Zoom, doing theater on video, changing the way, I, and I had to change the way I, I looked at things. So stepping outside of your particular paradigm and looking at, at it from the other way could be incredibly, incredibly powerful. Um, and, you know, uh, in Panama, um, I don't know if you already had an international client base, but you could potentially um, start reaching out further, you know, cast the net a little wider. And even if that's a matter of working with folks um, 
you know, uh, on a volunteer basis, just to get a little, just to build your list of contacts and your list of of collaborators, even um, in the time when you have time to do that. And I think that um, some of what we've what we've done in the community of office hours has been that for me. You know, as as time as things shifted during the pandemic, um, now I'm pretty bit. I'm pretty you know I'm pretty busy when it comes to my my day job being a lighting designer, and so these things come and go and they shift and they change. And so, you know, just keep pushing at getting, making yourself better. And then pulling in from the community here, John says, schedule time to work on the business, not just in the business. And if you have a small business association or a chamber of commerce in your locality, join it. Next question. Chris Sabato from Albany, Oregon asks, using Dante virtual sound card with just a single in and out, is there a disadvantage of sending DVS to 16 or 32 so the I.O. number matches in my X32? For example, DVS 16 subscribes to X32 16. Go ahead, Nigel. Yeah, I think the answer is it's a networking question. If you have infinite bandwidth, uh, then there's really no issue. Um, if you have a gigabit bandwidth and you're doing things generally at a fairly low sample rate 48k you'll probably be fine but the moment you increase your sample rate you reduce your bandwidth available so it's really a bandwidth in question and so what i've discovered in my my little world is a i have a completely separate network for my dante and b i've tried to be economic not to use processing power either on my machines or in the network, I don't need. So I've thought very much more, plus the fact I have two or three machines that I talk to uh, my X32 with, so quickly I'm going to have that problem that they can't all be on 1 to 16. But it's really a networking problem. There's not a lot of great data that I found that, that answers the question, if I allocate 16 but only use three, what does that mean bandwidth-wise? And someone wiser than me know, may know the answer to that. But I've tried for my own environment to manage the network by assuming that it's a scarce resource and not allocate what I didn't need. Next question. Michael Patra from Poland. Is there a cheaper alternative to Sennheiser MZA900P to run a Sennheiser ME2, Mike? Alexander. There is, and it should work, road makes a little uh, adapter, excuse me, called the VXLR Pro that will convert 48 volts phantom power down to the plug-in power that most labs use. That should work. I did take a look at that Sennheiser. It does look like it offers a few features, which they obviously charge a premium for. It's got a couple of gain um, settings on there, plus it has a high-pass filter, it looks like. So they charge quite a bit more money for that. But the, the Rode adapter, which I think is 40 or $50 US, uh, should work, and I'll post a link in the chat. And Courtney? Yeah, it, it depends on your purpose. If you're trying to go into a mixer that has 48-volt phantom and you don't want to deal with a, a battery-type power supply, the, the plug-in power of those uh, ME2s is just uh, between 1.2 and 5 volts uh, is all you got to supply. And they plug in. There's a lot of uh, transmitters and small, video record and small audio recorders that have plug-in power that will accept that 3.5-millimeter jack directly so you don't have to go through that uh, adapter. Uh, another manufacturer is, uh, this one's 129 so it's about 50 bucks cheaper from Voice Technologies. It converts 48-volt Phantom to uh, the 3.5-millimeter uh, plug-in power type uh, 
connectors. So you, you can get them out there. Some of them have transformers in them, but lately most of them are unbalanced, actually. Next question. Sean Johnson is here with a, uh, another question. Hi, folks. I might be in the need to hire some freelance production techs, mainly control room positions. Is there a resource in the Office Hours community and Discord to post my request? Thanks. Talak? Yeah, so I think there's a channel called I Need Help in Discord, and um, that should be a great place for you to, to post those. And then, uh, you know, folks will respond with availability and with, you know, the right kind of skill set, and then you can kind of start a, a direct comp communication from there. And Alex? And reading this, we really should have something that's more like I Need Help, I think it's mixed up with people that need help, <laughs> as opposed to people need people to help them um and so i think we should uh I'll, we'll, we'll look at it on the back end but we should probably have just job postings you know like hey we're looking for these or positions available um we should put that in there i think we've gotten to a point where we should make that available so stay tuned for that next question andre dole from berlin how do you motivate yourself if you have some working tasks to do that will take some hours but you're tired of it nigel so uh, i ne first of all Never leave a job to the last minute. I think all these people who say, well, you know, I, I, I waited to the last minute until the exam paper. I just don't. Life stuff happens all the time. And if you wait to the last minute to do something, something's going to happen. But but that that's the simplistic answer. There's actually Scott Adams, uh, the Dilbert guy, has a new book out called Reframe Your Brain. And the reality is much of this stuff is the way that you think about it. If you think about this work as tiresome, unnecessary, annoying, or something, guess what? It will be tiresome, annoying, and unnecessary. If you think about it as a key step in achieving something else, then reframe it to something that you want to get through and get done rather than something you don't want to do but have to do. CJ? For me, it's about discipline. Uh, if you think that there is a project that's going to take multiple days worth of work to do, uh, make sure that you're blocking off time to work on that specific project and don't let anything but an absolute a literal fire interrupt that. The other thing is when you're starting your day, uh, there's a phrase that I really like called eat your frog. Uh, pick the thing that you're least looking forward to doing and do that first because when you get over that hump, all of a sudden the rest of the day you feel like you've lapped everybody and you're just, uh, you know, you're cruising. And Mitchell? Yeah, the frogs is good advice. Do the things you don't like first. Get Reward yourself the things you do enjoy. And if both of those don't work, it's time for a vacation. Go ahead, Alex. Turn off notifications. Do not disturb. All the time. 100% of the time. Go into your computer and turn off every notification possible. It is the devil. Like, notifications are the devil. That sounds you know, like a shirt. <laughs> they were created by, by, by the devil to keep people from actually getting what they need to get done done. So just just say no. Say, you know, get, get behind me to Satan. Anyway. Yeah, turn those in. A, keep, like Alex said, just put my, I will put my phone outside, like hide it so that I'm not tempted to look or check because, you know, just your hand. Um, first thing in the morning, like, so I put that task, whatever that hard thing is before the world gets up is get that out of the way. And as Mitchell said, like there's some kind of reward. So if I do not get this task done, I cannot have this or that. Courtney? 
Yeah, I always set a single goal for the day. Uh, a to-do list with seven things on it, I'll never get any of them done. Because I'll say, well, I'll get to that later. Uh, you know, I'll do this first. Because I'll do the ones I want to do first. And the ones that I don't like doing get pushed off and pushed off and pushed off. So I'll set a single goal for that day. My my goal is to do all the laundry, etc. Hate doing it. Have to do it. I'll establish that goal if I only set one goal a day. If I set multiple goals, I always fail. And Mitchell. And if you work at home, lock the refrigerator. Next question. Next one in from Jeff Hedberg in New York. A suggestion for a future show, how different members organize their business activities, show prep, knowledge, retention, etc., and general tools like Notion, Air Tablet, a table, Microsoft Planner, Apple Notes, general workflow, tutorials not required. Alex? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of these businesses, we could probably break that out into a couple different places. And so I think we should definitely put that on the list. And I'm going to take this, this, this uh, opportunity to say, hey, we're about to jump into the second hour and we're going to hand it off right now. Welcome, second hour for Office Hours Global. Thank you so much, producers, for all of your fantastic questions. Keep them coming as we get into this conversation about the future of AI in the theater space. And we are so lucky to have our very own Talak Lopez Waterman, lighting designer who has been integrating AI, artificial intelligence, into his workflow. So over the next hour, we're going to, Talak will share some of his workflows, some of his experience with it. We'll probably talk about a little augmented reality in the mix of it. And this is just also an opportunity for all of us to reimagine or think of the ways that we can integrate this, this technology that has taken the world by storm and how we can use it practically and just looking at what that looks like in the future. Talak, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. And um, I think, you know, it's it's um, it's early days, you know? I mean, a lot, of, a lot of times very early on, even before I heard us in this group start talking about AI, I um, was working as a lighting designer with a, on a show that, that had projection design. And I noticed that, you know, we'd have a comment or a note about what, about an image, an image in the projection design. And I would hear a, a bit of typing and then all of a sudden there'd be a new image up and i was like what is what is actually happening right now and i asked him and he, he didn't want to to admit it at first but he then because it was a year ago um and he 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 wanted to he wanted to sort of keep it on the down low because he felt like maybe people would be upset with him but i think it was super super powerful because it was the, it was the idea of taking for example, the show was about South Africa. So there were images of South Africa that we wanted to use, but we didn't want to use them photographically. We wanted to use them as as in in a painterly way. And so um he would able he he was able to ask for them in Dali, uh these images of particular parts of Johannesburg, I think it was, in a, in a particular painterly style. And this was even a year ago and it was already, you know, a pretty amazing output. Um and and so, and I was like, well, maybe you really shouldn't say anything about that. You know, this, this was before it was being talked about at all. Right. And, and, but then I, then I started hearing about it here and I thought, oh, well, maybe there is a, a real potential for this tool. 
Um, the way that the tool has started to come forward for for me very directly is that the um, uh, sorry, one second. It, it, it is that the um, uh, the well, collaboration process has been has been expanded upon. So, if we're sitting here talking about how to how to make something feel a particular way, and there's a particular artist that the director is interested in, instead of only just looking at that artwork and seeing the subject matter that that particular artist is using, we can take the subject matter that is appropriate for the show and sort of combine them in a supernova of, of, of ideas that then will pull us forward in the collaborative process. And I'm sorry to interrupt you there. Uh, oh, no, no, no. It wasn't an interruption because it, like, for those who are, are watching that, just even on our community and Discord, there was an article that was posted where they had interviewed yourself and at the, was, I believe it was Jefferson is... Um, Jefferson Rittenauer, yep. Yes, Jefferson Rittenauer, and just how you were both using it. And I think that just even this conversation overall will help people who are still, you know, okay, AI, whether it be tech-averse and bringing it into their world, it's one, it's an inevitable, but your journey of trying to, to see where it makes sense and then where it's like, ah, oh, this is, this is kind of, this is not the place for it yet. And if you want to even... If you can think of a scenario where it's like, oh, we thought that would have worked, but not yeah. yet. Yeah, I think there's the other side of this too, right? I'm talking, I was talking a little bit about how exciting it is. There's the other side of it, and that is that I find that every time I ask for a prompt, there's some something, something about these images that are coming back that are similar to the others. There's mm. some, there's some through line there. And I can't quite pick it out. Like if I look through, there's I think in in Mid Journey there's a, there's some Discord channels and you can see a lot of people calling for a lot of different kinds of images. Those images feel like they're a very they're a single very diverse artist rather than a bunch of different artists coming together. So I'm I'm trying to pick that out as an artist and as a person who has to deal with the visual for myself. What is that thing that looks the same about each one of these things, and how can I essentially blur that out if I need to use it. You know, if I need to use it, what what else do I need to add to this image to really make it feel um, less like one hand? Um, and that's probably why I won't use it on a direct basis in, 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 in what will be seen by the audience at the end of the day. I will use it in collaboration right now and I will use it because it'll, and I tried, and sometimes I try and I say, because I want for this recent show I did in, um, in Arizona, it was the, uh, a world premiere of a Frankenstein, a new opera. And we, we were doing a bunch of work with LED screens and fabric. And we were thinking about shadows and through the shadows through the fabric and how will that look and how will it look? Um, will we be able to see those shadows in a, in a crisp way or in a blurred way? And we, so I asked for images from, um, from a couple of these, these engines and <laughs> I asked for, uh, you know, a large imposing man in shadow through a diaphanous material. And all I got was women. So, um, uh, you know, so, you know, I don't, it, it, it's probably, and Alex, you've said this many, many times that it's probably my lack of, um, prompting in the right way, but, 
it's a learning it's a learning process, and that's that's the kind of thing you run into if you're working on something and you need to collaborate on it right now. You throw it away fast, right? You just you, I got to I got to move to something else and pull some other images and, and work on this thing because it money is on the line. You've got to be able to make decisions fast and or not fast, but fast enough to set a decision about a particular hard thing that's going to be built that costs a lot of money. And the, the longer you wait, the more money it costs. Right. And so now you've got the the technical background to begin to see like, okay, I see it, tools like whether it be the chat GPTs, the dollies, what would you say to those, those maybe smaller houses, theater houses who see it, but just even don't even know where to begin? What advice would you give to them? Uh, I think exploration is 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 really important. A lot of times, some of the very small smallest theater companies aren't going to spend the money on bringing in outside designers. They're not going to, you know, they they might have an in house set of designers, and 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 sometimes those are outstanding, fantastic folks. You know, like a guy or a, or a gal that has a house gig designing, you know, every day, every every season, the same the same place, and they're it's in their hometown super awesome, right? Like there's no, I'm not trying to disparage that at all. But if they have less resources for even their own time, they may be able to utilize some of these these uh, ways to pull images out and get ideas. Even for, even if they're, like a lot of times in a very, 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 very small theater, you might have one designer that's doing, and this happens in big theaters too, that's doing all of the disciplines, that's doing scenery and lighting and, and co- costumes. So, you know, if they can save themselves some time by having ideas blossom from, from, this, from this medium, then I think it's a, a super great thing. And what are some of the, and we also spoke um, just in preparing for yeah. today, the the augmented reality part of it in just how you're using like 2D, 3D, if you want to touch yeah, on that absolutely. a little so bit more, because we have a lot of <laughs> fans in the community of that space. Yeah. So there were, there was, um, it, there was a lot of discussion about that in the article that, that you read, Liberty, and, and I think what's that's probably a, a more established process than even using AI because what we do is we model the sets that we're working on and we can look to see how um, the the light you know interacts with that set in a before it's built which is hugely important and and then we can also use uh, an augmented reality, augment 3D in the in in one of the lighting consoles, and then other what you see is what you get um, uh, processes uh, are available in other consoles. And what you do is you bring in the model of the theater, you bring in the model of the set, and then you can quite literally place uh, the moving lights or even the static lights in place. You can focus them. You, I can grab with a mouse all of the moving lights and move them around the set and be and have it be real accurate to real life as to where I'm pointing it which has become part of my workflow of late more than it ever has has been because I find it to be much faster cuz I don't often in in the design s- s- setups that I'm in I'm asking a programmer to do things and so if I'm if 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 it's taking them forever to scroll up the pan and then scroll up the tilt and then you know it, it, it takes time that we don't have. So to be able to ask them to just grab a mouse and point it at this door and have every light, every moving light in the, in the rig just point at it and be accurate, I find that to be um, 
incredibly powerful, and I've started to ask my programs programmers to do that. It's less easy to do if there isn't already a three-dimensional rendering or three-dimensional object of that particular set. So um, it's great working with with folks like Jefferson, as we talked about, because he works from the beginning in three dimensions. So immediately mm-hmm. I can just bloop, drop that into the lightboard and off to the races. And as our, our panel, I see hands being raised and, and questions coming in from our community. Now, as a lighting designer, you've kind of spoken to us about how you are using, I heard the word collaboration, more of a collaborator. How else would you like to see, like, what would maybe help solve some of your, your pain points in getting productions together, getting them prepped? Yeah, and I, I mean, I am talking a lot about the very early days of this process, and and for me, it's it's a big, it's a really fun part. The part when I'm getting on a Zoom meeting with people from different parts of the country or world and talking to them about what we're about to do and getting excited about it. And, you know, as a, as a lighting designer, it's always a bit of a pain point because my world is ethereal. It is not something that you can, well, some people can. I cannot paint you know, the thing that I'm seeing very well and show it to somebody and let them see it so that they can understand where I'm coming from. So I've had to become very, very good at explaining what I want to do with my words. If if there was some way where I could accurately output and quickly, because there's a there's a, a quick component about it. You know, if you if you're working on 17 shows in a season, you've got to be able to really work fast in these ways. Otherwise, you know, going to paint for 20, for 30 hours in order to show something to somebody that they don't want to use is a problem, right? right? And so we've got to have economy of time for me. And so, and so the ability to pull something out that is actually what I'm wanting to show. So if I could be way detailed with my, with my prompts, maybe there's a lab in that here, you know, to learn how to do that so that it pops out what I'm actually thinking. That, would be a game changer for me because then it's not, it's not some other artist making, making something it's me making something. Right. So. That's a great point, Alex. Yeah. I oftentimes find that it really is one of those things that you are trying to find something in your mind, you know, that you're trying to show someone and trying to explain it. And I was talking to a fairly prominent uh, director about this and they use mid journey a lot. Um, to do this, but they still have unlimited resources to, to to have people sketch stuff for them. They said, the big thing is I can sit there in an evening while I'm watching TV, just running through ideas of dancing with the prompts and everything else. And then I bring over three or four things, which I hand to a concept artist and go, this is the feel I'm looking for. This is the kind I'm looking, but I need this to be over here. And it's so much faster for the artist. The artist understands where I am and what I'm thinking and everything else. And there's this guesswork because you know, when you think of, when you look at these mid-journey art, you know, these mid-journey renderings, um, the amount of time that it would take somebody to do. So I was, um, it was <laughs> Mitch will enjoy this one, I think. Oh, Mitch is not here anymore. Um, uh, like I, I, I was, um, I have, I'm fiddling with a music video. Um, and, uh, and so the, um, and so I, I, I was fiddling with like trying to do concepts of it. Now this is, 
a little rebel. <laughs> I will. This will twinge a couple people, but this is. Uh, I was doing. There's a. There's a thing called nine, by Nine Inch Nails called Head Like a Hole, and I've been working on this music video on and off for about ten years. And so there's this one chorus that that said there, and um, so I was working on this concept, and Mid Journey did this in about a minute, <laughs> you know. And and the thing is, is the amount of time it would take, you know, you know, because I there's this chorus where it's like bow down to, you know, and you. And uh, you want, and I try to get that, me figuring that out. I could try to talk to someone about that. It would take them a long time and cost me a lot of money, but I was able to give it. Now, is that exactly what I want? No, but, it, but I can hand that off to somebody and they can, you know, run with it. Um, I was looking for a kind of a big kind of alien style, like this guy walks into this massive spaceship, you know, and, and sees this thing. And I, you know, and I, this is one of probably... 200 images that I created in about 15 minutes, you know, of, you know, that I, that I really liked there. Um, you know, this is, <laughs> I was playing with, this is fine. All I typed in was, this is fine. Like literally all I typed and this is, you know, I produced a whole bunch of them, but these are very different looks, but all I typed was this. I don't know if you guys know the, the, the meme, this is fine, but this is what it came up with. I said, this is fine drinking coffee. That's what I, that's what I said. Um, trying to describe to someone what Wabi Sabi was, and I was trying to explain it and so I just typed in, literally the only thing I typed into mid-journey was wabi-sabi. And I got, now when I say that, it's not like it punched out this image. I, I typed this in and I selected a couple things as it went through and it was like, and I did it in about, again, about two minutes, three minutes. And I was able to kind of show an image that describes what I was trying, you know, illustrates what I was trying to illustrate there. Um, you know, again, this, you know, kind of you're working on a concept of an idea and you, you this would take an, an artist to render days, maybe a week <laughs> to put that together, maybe weeks to put together that one and to paint it would take, you know, at least a couple days to paint that out. Um, you know, and I can just kind of throw it out there. Is it exactly what I want? No. Uh, is it enough for me to hand to a concept artist and save them days of going down the wrong path? Absolutely. You know, and so that's the thing that I look at. I don't look at these things. I think in the same way that Tlaloc has it, I don't look at them exactly the way that I'm going to use the images that I created. I'm thinking about them in, I can, I can explore ideas and directors do this all the time. They just usually have people to do them for them. Like the directors are like, I'm thinking of this thing. And then they have people they can pay to draw many ideas until they find, until, until that artist finds what the director was already thinking. And so if the director can do that at, at breakneck speed and then still hand it back to the artist, which is absolutely necessary. You, you can't get, I mean, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like working with a loopy cousin that is kind of like, <laughs> it kind of answers your question. You're like, were they really listening to me or were they just making something up? So, so you're kind of dancing with this process. Now, the one thing I will say is that I, I, I follow a lot of people who post Chase. I can't think of Chase's last name, but he's on Twitter gold. Like that guy is gold. Like he'll talk about, oh, I figured this thing out. And the most important thing is, is that he leaves what he, his prompt in the alt text. So you can go in there and look at the images. And what I do is I cut and paste those, the ones that I like, I cut and paste them into a note. I have a notes document that's my cheat sheet of all these things that worked well. And I just, and it's like, and, but it'll be like, again, for, from like, Tlaloc's absolutely right. If you don't say what you want, there's a certain feel to Mid Journey. There's a certain feel to Dali, to Dali. But if you say, shot, you know, as a National Geographic photographer with this camera and this lens and short depth of field and this aperture, you start to develop, you know, things that just look like whatever, or, or in the style of Ivan Durrell or in the style of Pixar or in the style of Rembrandt, you can do those things and you start to get, 
things that definitely have a very, um, they, they feel like that thing. And you can combine them. You can say Rembrandt lighting in the style of H.R. Giger and you get some really crazy things. Uh, anyway, so, so the, um, but those are the kind of things that you can kind of mix and match and again, explore at a speed that, you know, is, is, but again, I've never used any of the stuff that I'm using as the final product. I use it as concept. Go ahead, Talak. Yeah. And I find that, um, one of the things that happens to me in, in collaborative conversations with, with directors and other designers is that we talk about some pretty obscure artists. Um, and so the thing that I should try to start to do is that when those obscure artists pop up, they're not Rembrandt. Rembrandt like is the sort of thing that is very, very well known in the world. The question is if somebody has walked into a particular gallery, um, and, uh, and if they've walked into a gallery that they've seen, and this is a one-off artist and they have a photograph of that and they bring that to us and they're like, we want to work in this style or I want to work in this style. What do you guys think? So the question is um, that that I would like to put into my workflow is how to pull those obscurities, those those obscure artwork pieces that we're using as inspiration into the process. And, and I think that, um, uh, you know, absolutely, I can get a lot out of asking for something in the style of Rembrandt and style, style of Giger and style of, uh, of um, you know, many, many of the photographers, like a lot of times we think about a style coming from a photographer. Um, and, uh, but what if that's not an unknown, what if that's an unknown artist? And so, um, you know, that's, that's uh, um, interesting to know and that's, how much is pulled in, you know, how much is pulled into its brain, <laughs> you know. And that's, and that's so. where stable diffusion starts to, you know, having a local conversion of stable diffusion and being able to inject all that into the system so that it's there. And oftentimes that's working with the artist to do, to do some of those things. Yeah. But, the, um, but, but that's the, you know, where you get those. And, and you can, what I think is funny is you can take images and throw it in and say, start with this and then run with it as well, which is an interesting process. And just um, some uh, CJ, both CJ and Adrian have said the person that you might have mentioned was like Chase Lean and yeah, Chase Ray Lean. Wong. That those folks on on Twitter X um, are are some of those those go to. And now while we've spoken a lot about the more visual side of things, I'm also interested to see how voice can be involved as well in this this. Um, how in the AI part of things, there is a group in Taiwan, I believe it's Sheen House Theater. So they've been using it in a way that when the actors say certain things that they've got an LED screen that it starts switching the imagery based off of their almost like voice prompts. So it, it like, you know, the sky's the limit, but just seeing how some other organizations are trying to, to make use of it as well. I see, I see this coming my way. You know, when it comes to my projection design work, um, a lot of times the type of work that I'm involved in is, is the type of work that I can, um, do with Isadora. Uh, I know we, we have a big Isadora following here in the community. And, and so, and as we start to be able to use JavaScript and Python inside of Isadora, um, we can probably tap into some of these, some of these models, some of these, what are they called? Large learning models, something like that. Yes. And, um, and so, and so 
if we can do, start to do that, we can output things that are reactions from, you know, chat GPT or uh, as, as Isadora hears something, it could, we could make some logic that then asks a question and prompts in, um, in, in chat GPT or even in, in Dolly or Midjourney and pulls an image out that we just don't know what's coming. You know what I mean? In the show live. Um, and, and I, I, I kind of see that on the horizon in a big, in a big way. Um, the other thing is that, um, I, I'm starting to hear about folks that are using AI inside of Isadora already. This is happening already. Um, and it's the kind of thing that we were faking, <laughs> Um, in some of our shows just, uh, just, just five years ago, you know, um, and, uh, we have, um, we pretended there to be a robot, you know, the, all this stuff in opera about five or six years ago, there was a, a, an opera that was sung by robots, quite literally, these literal robots that drove out on stage and like did things and sang and, and, you know, that the reviews were mixed, but, <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> they were there, <laughs> and I I drove from a, a gig in Louisiana to Dallas just because I needed to see this. Like this was right. something I needed to see, and they went on a limb. It was not a cheap process, you know. Um, opera is the most expensive thing to do in anyway, and, you know. So and then you and then you add robots to the mix, and it's like what the, um, and so. And so, uh, and so, I think that there's there's always some edge case in theater because it is a primarily uh, donation driven kind of process. So they we push the edge a little bit more than in film and in broadcast and in television. We just push that edge. I mean, I, I did a show where I built a helmet with a monitor on it that a person performed all of their stuff previous previously recorded. And then we sent with Isadora, we sent his face, his own face, to a monitor and it, it, he spoke all of his stuff from his monitor and just did like movements and dance. Um, and, and, and this was in 2011, you know, so we're, we're, we're trying things out that are more, have, have some more potential of actually not working. <laughs> um, that's so, where the magic is, right? Yeah, though? That's, that's, right. That, that's where the learning and the yeah. magic is of like, okay, so it didn't work, mm -hmm. but you stumbled into something else that you didn't know that you needed and yeah. now you know being able to to work through that a lot of the twitter x stuff you know back when it was just twitter we were trying to pull uh, and I, this is not ai i apologize but like we were trying to figure out the api and pull those in those tweets in so that an audience member could tweet something about the show that then was almost immediately projected it's the kind of thing that alex talks about doing on uh, and and many folks here talk about doing on streams, but in a live, in a live, in the room sensibility, and um, and and so, I think the sky's the limit when it comes to how much we can start to think about and do with um, these strong and relatively right now inexpensive processes. I, I think those prices are going to go up. The right now, but, the right now part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Courtney, yeah, I was going to ask Lalek since since now a lot of uh, opera backgrounds uh, involve projection or LED walls. Have you toyed with the idea of having AI create a backdrop uh, using the same prompt 
night after night, but getting a different result. So just to keep it fresh and keep it uh, different for the you know attendees that may attend more than one performance, it'll no two performances will be the same because the backgrounds will all change, but be similar in design, like a ballroom background or whatever castle background. It would be a different, a different castle, a different background uh, every time the performance is done. I will tell you two things. One, great idea. Two, my heart rate just elevated by twice because I was like so freaked out by the idea of that as a person who wants things to be locked in on opening night and then and I leave. <laughs> I just don't want things to be different. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's an, that's an interesting idea. I think we, everybody would have to be on board with that from the from the top. Otherwise, I'd, I'd be getting frantic rehearsal reports because, you know, uh, sorry, performance reports. We get rehearsal reports every day from the stage manager and we get performance reports every day from the stage manager and it would just be like well <laughs> Dolly did a bad job today <laughs> some someone to point point the blame point the blame to but before we get into these questions and 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 with our panel as well you've mentioned a couple of tools if you want to just kind of give a, a quick overview maybe of some of the ones that you are using um, yeah. as you are in doing the integration. So ChatGPT has a visualized function now. Uh, I've used that. Um, Dali, as I've spoken before, I've spoken about before, and Midjourney are the main AI uh, versions. Also, Photoshop has a machine learning AI um, background, yeah. background such, uh, erase feature that has been, I've, it's been cropping up everywhere in, in my work and also in, others work that I see. Photoshop is a real staple of even that early, uh, that early um, collaborative process, you know, cause then the, the, if you're really facile with, with Photoshop, you can put things together really fast. And then now you have that AI component and then that can be an even faster process. Um, and then when it comes to uh, three-dimensional visualization, pre-visualization, I'm talking, I'm starting out in, in Vectorworks, you know, um, building those three-dimensional objects and spaces and venues. And then you can actually connect that with a button click to uh, one of the vendors through Un uh, Unreal Engine. And you can drop that over and utilize some of the better lighting. Because the thing about the lighting in Vectorworks is, it's not quite good as good with the natural fall off of beams and it's it it takes longer to get there but you can drop it into unreal engine and just be feel feel much more real in a very immediate way and that's useful for what has been incredibly useful for me as i'm trying to pitch a scenic design because sometimes i do scenic design too so if i build something uh three-dimensionally in vectorworks send it over to midjourney uh, not midjourney to unreal engine and then take four or five different viewpoints in Unreal Engine into images and send those over to the director. I get a yay or nay and a heartbeat and I can move on. You know, like that, that is incredibly powerful in terms of understanding what is needed in a particular design. Alex? Yeah, the... Um... Uh, the other thing to look at is runway runway AI. You, you know, so that's another one that's doing video of of your descriptions of what you're looking for. And I was thinking about the the whole like idea of responding and and having um, the idea of improv could be really really interesting. Where you are, um, I've I've done a couple things. 
my version of this sometimes is, you know, because this is a, the most simple version of this is it's, it's not as fun anymore because it's too predictive. But for a long time, you'd always get the next word that, that it thinks you're going to say that would pop up. And, and I would just say, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I would just start tapping on it. Then it would just build this crazy story as if someone, some maniac had just kind of put together this crazy, um, you know, uh, c- connection of a story. But I think that there'd be really interesting of being able to go back and forth with AI, like have actors sitting there and one of them is just reacting to what it's hearing and um, and then just and just saying what it's going to say. And someone maybe is speaking for it or eventually a, a voice is speaking to it. Um, and I think that it would be interesting. I think that'd be more interesting online. I think with all the money at stake and, and infrastructure, doing it in a stage would make me very nervous like Tallock. Um, but I think it'd be really fun to have improv, do improv on Zoom, for instance, and just go be back and forth. And these are the characters and these are the people doing stuff. And we're going to do something live and we have no idea what's going to, what I would, I would enjoy that as someone who did a lot of improv in my, my younger years. Um, it'd be really fun to just kind of react and just react to something that is constantly. And and if you tell it, the interesting thing about AI is you could, we used to bring different actors in because they'd bring different things to the, to what you're doing. But AI, you say, you are this person and then it will react somewhat like that person all the way through, which would be really fun. All right, Jason, let's get into these questions. Gladly. Douglas Carmichael writes in, could you easily connect ChatGPT to a synthetic character on stage like MetaHuman with a bit of Isadora? Hello. Absolutely, you could do it. I don't think easy comes into into play um, because if you're doing it in an easy way, it's probably going to be done in a poor way. Um, so you, 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 the way that I look at it is we can make it happen, but then we have to refine it. We have to refine it so it works in the way we need it to work. It ha- we have to refine it in, the, in, in, in such a way that um, becomes a palatable and beautiful experience for the audience. And that's where it needs to not be easy. And I'm not saying that the thing itself should not be easy, but it should you should not stop at where it's done. And so you make it work and then you work on it and work on it and work on it and you probably cut it. I mean, that's how this business works, right? You 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 cannot be precious with any of these processes. And you can't do it for the reason of the technology. Because if you do it for the reason of the technology, there's nothing behind it. And if there's nothing behind it, it's gonna get cut and you've just lost a lot of money or you've just lost a lot of your own time. So I would say, watch out with easy. Next question. Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania writes in, could you see AI being leveraged in order to provide unique experiences for spectators that differ from ticket to ticket? Um, yeah, I think I think you could. Um, but but that but it, it, it it's a matter of figuring out how to do that is that a, is there a matter of you know augmented reality for each for each person uh having you know well talk about expensive we could have you know everybody has a vision pro <laughs> um and so they have their own experience of a particular live process on stage um but again you th- these are the sort of things that that answering this question right now seems almost problematic because it's the kind of thing I want to get in a room with 10 people or three people or whoever the designers are and director are is and really gnash on it. You know what I mean? That's the process that I love about this job is, you know, seven, eight months or years ahead of time, start thinking about what this process is, what this project is going to be. And, um, and, and sometimes it's, it happens. 
I will say this, it happens less on some things than others. Some directors don't think lighting designers should be part of the collaborative process until the set is completely direct designed. And so um, I have to learn how to be incredibly careful about how I say, you know, you haven't left any room for me to light this show at all. Like there's no room for me. There's a ceiling. <laughs> like, how do you want me to get light in there? There are, there's one door. That means I can bring light into one door and then have front light and have it be completely flat. So how do I say that? How do I have that conversation in a way that, that actually elevates the process instead of just turning, turning them off to collaborating with me? Um, which I know doesn't have anything to do with AI, but it, it, it kind of does, right? Because you, 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 you want to be part of the generative process of anything. And um, so I have to work to get into those meetings. Alex? I wanted to go off on that tangent that Tlaloc just opened up there just for a second while we're talking about this is uh, over time I've gone, I've, I'm on a transition from someone who would just tell you exactly the way I want you to do it and exactly how you do it and exactly here's where we're going to go to, you know, relatively often asking people what they think and how they do it. And, and I propose these things. I, I, you know, this is what I'm thinking right now. And being able to sometimes not listen to it immediately, but I'm, not, I'm still working on that part. But I don't, I don't zigzag. I think that there's a certain stability. Like you kind of have to argue with me and then give me time to think about it for a little while. Um, but, but when I put on a production, when we're doing productions, oftentimes I bring in people that I think know more about whatever they're doing than I do. Like that's who I hire to do the thing. The camera operators are better camera operators than I am. The TD is better TD than I am. The, per, you know, like all these things. And then I spend a lot of time asking them what they think. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, like, so you, you put those people in positions and then you sit there and go, so what do you think we should do here? And how, how do you think we should handle it? Like when I, when I hire Brian Maddox or Mickey or other people to do audio for me, I don't really tell, I tell them what I'm trying to get done. I don't tell them what to do. You know, like, so when Brian's sitting there in a truck with me, I have no idea what he's doing. You know, like, I don't know what he's doing. I just say, well, we need to make sure we can talk to this person or we need to have these mics up or whatever, or we need to have access to this. And then he figures it out, you know, and I think that there's a real um, dance there that production that some people are better at than others. And I was the worst at it 10 years ago and I'm, I'm still on the road to recovery. Um, so, you know, so, so I'm still working through that, but, but I think that the more you get good at collaborating with the folks that you're working with, the, the better. And Courtney? Yeah, I would love to see uh, an improv group put together an AI-generated play that would change every night. They would have teleprompters positioned in the wings and, you know, out uh, in the audience, above the heads of the audience, so that uh, they would have a basic outline, a prompt, that would outline the story and the characters. So they would stay in a particular character, but they'd be cold reading the whole play off the teleprompters that's generated by chat GPT, Ooh. a new story every night, uh, would be very fresh and very entertaining. And, and improv actors are pretty good at taking characters and running with them. So uh, that would, I would be, do that I would love heartbeat. to see that. I would do that in a heartbeat. That'd be so much fun. Uh, you get kind of into a character and then just get handed lines in real time. You may, I would love to have it so I see him at least a second before. But but I read it. I, I could I could read it out and, and do it. I I think that would be. I think we should get some. I would. I'm in. I'm in. That'd be a ton I'm of saying. fun. That yeah. would be great. That's us. I'm like feeling the. It could be me improv folks that are watching right now. What that that would be a a lot of a lot of pressure. But I'm sure we get a lot of angry. Like this is the you know we get a lot of like I can't believe you're doing this you know but but it would be it'd be fun to just not know what's 
yeah, what's coming next? Even the for, as, an, as the actor, yeah, not know. You know, it's players. like when the audience the audience throws out a topic and an improv group will go. Yeah, we used to do that. Yeah, but uh, it, only this time your dialogue is generated and you have to perform the dialogue. The dialogue is all generated by ChatGPT, and you don't know where it's going. I love that. And uh, pulling in from the comments here, Richard said, back to the the question about just overall AI being leveraged in unique experiences, depending on tickets, um, that yes, look at immersive theater as a model, uh, as a model for this. And um, Talak. Uh, to start off with 100% agree with, with, uh, with Richard, you know, there was a there was a an AI, an immersive theater model in Berlin that was happening for many years in the early two thousands, where um, they would t they would it, theater groups would make Berlin walking tours, <laughs> and you would walk through, and then you know uh, ver various famous artists that that have been in the salons of Berlin, if you will, um, will just show up on the walking tour, like in costume, actors in costume. Um, so, uh, you know, what is the guy's name who does all the Campbell soup cans? I can't, it's just, it's left my brain. Warhol. Warhol. Yeah. So Andy Warhol would come out of a bush and start talking to you. <laughs> it was just amazing. <laughs> um, and so, and I knew a few of the folks that were, were building those, those tours and they were, they were kind of more for the, for the art tourist than they are for the, you know, normal run of the mill tourist, but they were, they were pretty fun. But that experience is a completely different experience for each person because you're walking through it, right? And you're, and you're, you don't know where you are in the group and, you know, you're going to have, anyway. But also I wanted to say that, um, uh, yeah, I think, I think I, I, I got completely sidetracked by, uh, by Richard's comment. So I will talk about something else later. <laughs> <laughs> Chris? I think you could couple the, uh, the office hours improv AI theater players with um, real-time generated backgrounds generated by the audience prompts. So... And so then, you know, you get added, you know, performance points or bonus points if you somehow interact with with the new background. I, there's something here. I mean, this is like, you know, thanks for clicking. There, there, there's something here. And if you if you get the audience involved in steering the dialogue and steering the backgrounds, this could be huge. I see the wheels, the wheel, the wheels. I'm here looking at all the panelists, seeing all the wheels um, going. Talak, I, I just Chris brought me back on topic. I appreciate it, Chris. So, I did a show at the very top of the pandemic, or my top of in terms of me getting back into shows that was on Zoom, and it's called Everybody. And everybody, halfway through, there's a lottery as to what character plays what, what actor plays what character. And so I had to build a thing in Isadora that would randomly pick a series of people that would do what, right? And um, and so, and I could, it took me a long time to figure out how to do that. <laughs> but finally I, I, I did. And that would actually switch what each in camera input was doing. So that did different things on the Zoom, on the YouTube output. And um, it was maddening. 
<laughs> because at that time we didn't have Zoom ISO, so we were also tracking the gallery and pulling people out of the gallery separately. And you should have seen the spaghetti that Isadora was to make that happen. It was insane. Um, but if even if you were to build some things like that, that shifted what what particular folks were doing in video in that that randomized way might might make some for some exciting acting. <laughs> and to go um just even between like what Richard said and just part of the conversation we've had here. Now while we focused on the LED screens and and just prompting, I'm my thought goes to possibly like even the business user experience side of things where if there's some way in like the the data that's collected possibly when people sign up for an experience what what i don't know keywords or things that could then depending on their ticket then yes they get a certain kind of experience not saying any better or worse than but just from the other side of things not just the visual side but just the experience that they have as a, a ticket holder what do maybe some of the things they see what do they get even marketing wise just there are other sides to it as well just wanting to bring in like the whole theater um, experience well that was just like my mind was just thinking of other ways that that could be involved too and um, going back to what you said earlier, Talak, even though you felt like it, you were going down a rabbit hole, I think there's a valid point there, too, of how soon you get brought into when uh, production is like where they are, that that's an important part of this conversation as well as like when to bring these elements in and the sensitivities of those that are, you know, this is their livelihood they've been working on for such a long time. And then, okay, here we're recommending AI where there's, there's just still that conversation of like talent and machines. So I think that it's probably a completely different question, but you just made some valid points there. Alex? I do think one of the reasons that people come to a live event is to be part of it. Like, I mean, I think that that's not the only reason. Sometimes they just come to experience it. But when I look at the things that people are going to remember when I'm doing events and I'm doing them, whether they're online or in person, when the audience is involved, we see this huge interaction. So finding ways, whether it's using AI or using other things, um, you know, there are a handful of music artists like, you know, I mean, Bobby McFerrin and, and there's, I can't think of the other guy's name right now, um, that uh, does lots of different instruments and plays the audience. Like he literally plays the audience and, um, uh, and it's, it's an amazing thing. And, and, I, and I always feel like, well, people are going to remember that. Like, you know, they're going to remember, they're going to remember being part of that thing. That's why you go to that, whether it's at a movie theater or whether it's at, you know, and I think that we've gotten away from that um, in a lot of places. And I think that, but I think that AI can help us. I know for what we look at in the future of audience interaction is AI allowing us to create these giant scaled events and still respond to the audience appropriately because we can move through all of their comments and all their questions, you know, at a speed that we could never do, even if we put a hundred people on it, they couldn't do it because there'd be, because they're different minds, you know, to, that are all trying to do the thing at the same time. And you, you have to use AI to do it. Right. And that's what they're, they're saying, like personalization, your ability to like really get down to what that specific person needs and provide that, you know, right. exceptional service there. Um, Talak? Um, I think this is also speaking towards a, a little bit of a pressure between 
sort of the handmade thing and the digital thing. And this has come up a lot of times in my in my collaborative processes where or you know sometimes we're required to use a particular technology like LED screens. And it it comes at a sort of problematically, right? Like an LED screen is an LED screen is an LED screen. People know what it is. People see it and feel it, right? And um, I think the sphere is probably an, an antithesis to what I just said because you feel like you're actually in a thing from what I can have read. I don't know if that's true. But that's not the case in a theater because you have a frame, right? And so you can very easily see that this is an LED screen. So what we did in a in 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 a previous pro in a recent project is we covered every bit of that LED screen with crinkly fabric that was painted with Elmer's glue, <laughs> and so and so people didn't know if they were looking at a real shadow or if they were looking at a shadow from the LED screen. They didn't know if there, you know, it, it could, they couldn't tell or they shouldn't be able to tell. Sometimes there were some technical things that kept, made it a little too obvious. But, um, but that was our, from day one, when we knew we had to use this screen, that was our whole goal was to bring us, make it feel like an organic experience. And because the original process of that show was in the catacombs in a, in, in a cemetery in Brooklyn, which was incredible, incredibly visceral for 90 people, right? Um, where the, the spiders were actually falling on your shoulders. <laughs> and so, and I'm not kidding. And so, um, you know, and you're running, I had to run cable across a few grave sites in order to get the get the generator far away enough so you didn't hear it in the hear it in the catacomb catacomb. So that visceral experience that was the reason that this show got sold forward is something we don't want to lose. So how do you make that be the case if you're showing a square with pictures, right? You've got we've got to make it feel like a spider could fall on your shoulder. And that's that's a really poor way of putting that, but I think you get what I'm trying to say. Alex? You know, uh, I was reading this article about all the reasons that Marvel's struggling right now and, um, you know, <laughs> they're legion at the moment. Um, and one of the things that that I think I thought of while I was reading the article, it wasn't so much what was in the article, was how sensitive we are becoming to things being fake. And, you know, I think that there's this disconnection, you know, like I was watching, I was actually watching a Marvel film over the weekend. And noticing how many of the effects that even I that I notice, like the physics aren't right, the comp isn't right, the this isn't right, and it just doesn't. It just feels like you're just throwing pixels at the screen. You're not. You don't feel like you're like when you watch. And someone was posting on Twitter over the weekend that it was like good, you know, good visual. I mean, uh, uh, films with no visual effects are just films with great visual effects. <laughs> like you know, like that that it was done with all the needed detail. And I think that, you know, when we think about, the reason I think about that is when you're talking about the LED wall, I was talking to someone, we were working on the show with somebody and they were going to have LED walls. And I said, you know, I was like, oh, we should build the set and, and, and everything else. And they were like, oh, we don't want to build it with wood. And I was like, uh, you know, like you might, <laughs> like you might want to do that. Because it, and especially as it comes to live. So when it comes to theater and, and the live, what I do, allowing us to, to dance with the live performance is something that oftentimes we build infrastructures that make that hard, you know? And I think that that, you know, being able to have it be different every single time, being able to have it have some, not a lot different. Like I went to a 
play I played yet last night when my daughter was playing um, bass and, and in the pit. And so I was watching it and, you know, it's different. You know that it's live and it's different every single time. You know, it's it's not quite the same performance. And and I think that there is something very visceral out there that we are losing with a lot of these things. And I think that AI has the risk of doing that. I think you're going to find social networks in the future that they're going to use pass keys. They're going to use other things like that. And they're going to force you to not be a bot. You know, like they're going to, and they're going to say, you know, this, this social network is 100% not automated <laughs> like you know 100 manual like you can't automate anything here all you can do is is you know be a human being and be in it and i think that that's probably going to be part of the next generation and that ties in really well with vic's comment here in the chat he says seal physically engages his audience he'll go into the crowd and dance with sing with and just put his hand on shoulders engagement yeah. next question Douglas Carmichael writes in, could you see theater equipment vendors adding AI-assisted tools to, say, lighting console software? How about? Yeah, I think um, it's the kind of thing where 20 years ago, I, I, I couldn't imagine a lighting console having a, an augmented reality or a three-dimensional pre-visualization or currently visualization process, product. So I can't easily imagine how that would be something in a lighting console but maybe it would help you patch a show like maybe you, you could you it could it could know ahead of time the kind of light you would probably have in that position or in that channel if it starts to learn your channeling as a lighting designer i use the same channels setup pretty much every time so i can remember where to go if it starts to learn that it might be pre-patched you know um i it's an exciting idea <laughs> courtney yeah i was gonna ask can they use uh, AI to replace follow spot operators with Vera lights that actually follow the person around the stage using tracking like they do with uh, camera camera PTZ tracking so that uh, you can uh, change the lighting according to where the character moves and it follows them, tracks them? Yeah, I, um, it I think that would be pretty pretty easy to do because there's already a system within the ETC consoles that can follow uh, a, a little box that you know follows them around. So yeah, I think you could make that happen in a in a big way just by camera input and then tracking. facial recognition yeah. or something. Mm -hmm. Next question. Vic Hernandez in Springfield, Missouri writes in: Have companies like Verilite incorporated AI? Not, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't yet, but I bet you they will. Wow. Well, Talak, this is always like the part that I like to just get into. Like we've we've gone all over the place, which was the goal of this conversation to really just just imagine what the possibilities could be, and even in uh, unpacking that, hopefully we can get Jefferson. Rido, Re I hope I'm saying it. I'm like giving it a, a written hour. <laughs> written yeah. hour. Uh, I'd like getting, to bring him in. Yeah, for sure. Getting him to to come in next. Any additional parting words that you just around this conversation um, for us to just okay? Yeah, I think if there's anything that anybody that's not in theater could could take from this is that um, collaboration is the sort of thing that is greater than any of the parts. Bring people in early and don't disallow them from having ideas that are beyond what you've had. Because you're going to you're going to go to that meeting and you're going to come out with out of it going, "Wow. 
I didn't know that this was a possibility. So collaborate. Collaboration is a great, thank you so much to our panelists. Thank you so much for just your conversation, your ideas. I, I think we have something going there with the uh, improv and AI. So we'll see, Chris, Chris, you got to take, take the lead there. To our producers, thank you so much for your questions and, and the chat has been on fire. So thank you for, so much for that. And of course, our backend team without which this would not be possible at all. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Now coming up this week, Tomorrow we've got 3D graphics starters. So you, you want to come check out the tips to help you if you're just getting started with your 3D graphics. On Wednesday, we've got a lab and I hopefully will not butcher this, but it's Core. Is it Core? Korg. 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 So we, we, this is, this is uh, part two of the lab that we had before. So we, we, so you should go back. There's two things to watch before Wednesday. Uh, one is to, to go, Chris put out, a, there's a great video on our YouTube channel uh, that has uh, Chris kind of walking through the pipeline that he's using, um, using the Korg. Uh, this is the little piece of hardware that, that Chris is going to show us about. Um, but but how he does the, and he and I are going back and forth. So I haven't done anything from yet last week. I just, I was going to over the weekend because I was so excited. And then I was like, nope, I'm going to leave it where it is. And Chris and I will just pick up where we left off. So the other one to watch, if you're interested, is, and we have an enormous number of people that have been pinging me going, well, I just reorganized my whole thing and I just did all this based on your video. So go back and look at last Wednesday as we kind of work, work through that. And then we're going to finish it this Wednesday. This is kind of part of our new lab uh, ideas. And so if you like it, let us know as well. Let me know. Yes. And for the rest of the schedule, you can head over to officehours.global to get all of that together. And let's see, of course, where how far have we traveled? We have traveled on the Tullock Traversal, 49,092 miles. That's 79,005 kilometers. That's more than 388 million bananas for scale. Thank you so much for watching and we'll catch you in after hours. See you. Good to have you back, Liberty. Yeah, welcome back. back. Thanks, okay. y'all. So much to to process with today's convo. Consistently the most interesting group of people I've ever met. <laughs> I'm working on artificial stupidity, but don't tell me. <laughs> oh, is it iterating rapidly it, or de-iterating rapidly? It, it mostly it mostly just goes, oh, I don't know. I don't know. It's like, oh, oh what, a, what a great idea. Or, or it comes up with lots of opinions based on theoretical knowledge. But I'll it, get that so wrong sure. a lot. Let me tell you how this really works. Because I, I read it on, on Quora. I read it on Quora. This is exactly the way this works. I, 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 I actually, I actually triangu triangulated it between Quora and uh, Google and uh, Bing. And now I'm, Consensus I'm, I, and I, and between I Bing, Bing Quora. And, yeah. and now I know. I, I'm sure that this is the way it works. Sorry. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> That Bye -bye. was my <laughs>